Well, welcome everyone. I'm really happy to see so many faces here this evening and I'm really excited to um, share with you some of uh, my work in the book Mindful of Race and I'm hoping that you find it stimulating and um, energizing uh, because it's very much intended to be an anticoagulant for some of the heartburn that we experience today in the in the realm of uh, race and racism. I talk about this work. I talk about racism as a heart disease that's curable. And uh, I think one of the cures or one of the ways to enter into um, a sacred relationship with racial distress is through mindfulness meditation, where we get up close and personal with our conditioning and the way our minds have been colonized to be in relationship with this chronic fatigue, repetitive motion injury of race and racism. So I want to talk to you a little bit about some of my thinking in this area. It's, it's been a life's work. I remember very early on in my life, um, I think I was around the age of seven, I remember watching my, my, my great-grandmother pacing the floor in her kitchen, wringing her hands. And, you know, I come from a lineage of warriors and um, warriors. <laughs> and I remember her pacing and worrying uh, so distressed over um, how she couldn't protect the black bodies that were of her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I remember looking up at her and seeing the stress and strain and worry in her face. And I, uh, I remember making a deal with myself, I think, back then that said, I'm not going out like this. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a better way. Um, and I think the biggest heartbreak for me at that age was that I recognized that I couldn't comfort her. I didn't know how to comfort her. I, didn't, I don't even know if, a, if there was comfort for her weariness, for her weariness. I think she would be happy to know that I'm doing walking meditation now instead of, instead of pacing the kitchen floor. I think that there are better ways to go about this. And um, this idea that racism is a heart disease, I, I think it came to me pretty early because by the time I was 27 years old, I had had open heart surgery. And it occurred to me sometime during the recovery of that surgery that um, my life had really fixated itself around matters of the heart. There was heartbreak, you know, heartache, heart opening, um, heart surgery, um, heart knocks of the heart. You know, it just seems like there was always this way that in my worry there was some relationship to heartbreak that was going on. And, and my life centered. I mean, the very kind of circumference of my upbringing centered around race in South Central Los Angeles where I was raised. So I'm saying all of that to say that it's an older story than the book. It's, it's, it's been a real 
uh, part of um, uh, a big teacher for me to look at race and uh, to come to some reckoning with how to be with racial distress and racial injustice in a way where uh, my heart wasn't left out of the equation. And that's been a practice. And it's been an easier practice since stepping into this practice of mindfulness. So what I'm trying to do with this work in this book, there's the training that I've done for several years now that gave birth to the book. But what I'm trying to do is look at the intersections between of mindfulness and racial distress. How do we drop racial distress right into the heart of mindfulness practice, into our practice? The Buddha specialized in suffering, so there's no better place, I think, to work with some of what we uh, struggle with around this issue, including the numbness that we may have around it or the indifference. There's, there's nothing I know better than, than uh, to explore that through the lens of mindfulness. So I work with a lot of um, meditators that may not know um, or are looking to know more about racial awareness, their own and that of others. I work with activists who might need to know a bit more about mindfulness. Uh, I work with spiritual people who struggle with a sense of embodiment around this issue. And I work with artists who are also, uh, in deep ways, I think, mindfulness practitioners, especially jazz musicians. I don't know. That's, that's just my story about it. There's something about uh, being in the improvisational magic of music and artistry that I think gives birth to, uh, it's a teacher for us, but that's a bigger story. And I work with a lot of people who are just afraid, afraid to have this conversation, get a little lost in it just not sure um, what to think about it. So one of the things I found early on in my own uh, journey with looking at race is that I was trying to find a way to work with this topic so that I wasn't struggling and suffering so much. I, 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 was, I was not at war on the inside with myself and with others. Because my first book was about rage. So I knew also a lot about how to blame other people. And, you know, I, I can be so good at pointing out what's wrong and all these things. Um, but this book, Rage Wasn't Working. The righteousness of rage was just burning me up from the inside out. So I wanted a better way. I wanted a way where my thoughts and emotions weren't killing me from the inside on this issue. My professional background is in organizational development and clinical psychology. So I was trained to look at systems and group dynamics and power structures and all of these ways we've been conditioned that give birth to different types of cultures. So it made sense to me that I would develop a training program because I developed training programs, especially diversity training programs, to take a diversity training program idea and weave mindfulness meditation around it. So that's a piece of what we really have here. One of the ways I think it's useful to start to frame this 
conversation is through one of the teachings of the Buddha on the two truth doctrine, which speaks to ultimate reality and relevant reality, our absolute reality and, and relative reality, conventional reality. So in ultimate reality, we're not these bodies, you know, we're, we're, we're not all this. And, but in relative reality, which is the reality of concepts and perception and ego and um, identities, um, uh, that's, the, that's the reality of these bodies. These bodies walk around in relative reality, and, if, and part of our practice teaches us how to glimpse the idea of, of ultimate reality. We touch into ultimate reality through the body, through the senses. Because a lot of times um, we can, uh, if we're not aware of it, we can attempt to live in our practice, in our spiritual practices, whether it's Buddhism or other spiritual practices, uh, with a sense of spiritual bypass. And that's when we kind of bypass the relative reality and, and just hold ourselves more in the, in the light or in the spiritual place. And John Woolwood, who was a Buddhist psychologist in the 80s, talked about this as spiritual bypass. And this is what he said about it. He said, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. And then we tend to use the absolute truth to dismiss relative human needs and psychological problems. He says, I see this as an occupational hazard of the spiritual path, trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them is dangerous. It leads to a conceptual, one-sided spirituality in which one pole is elevated at the expense of its opposite. Absolute or ultimate truth is favored over relative truth. Emptiness over form. Transcendence over embodiment. Detachment over feelings. So this is the... This is the the soup of our relative reality, that we are touched by our lives. The, the reality of our relative reality is that we are separate and fragmented. We've been conditioned in our mind around race to relate to people in different and certain ways. We've been conditioned this way. We could be in an argument about whether this conditioning is real or not, or we can just see for ourselves what's true. And there are some things that we can begin to recognize to start to break up some of our conditioning or at least begin to question it around our relationship to race and racism. So in the book, I'm really speaking to the relative reality of race. I'm not speaking so much to the ultimate reality. I'm, I'm looking at our kinship, the way we bump and, 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 and hurt each other <laughs> out of innocence and out of ignorance. And I'm interested in how we can bring a certain tenderness and care to 
how we impact each other racially and just kind of wake that up a little bit. So when I'm talking about this, I use gross labels like white folks and people of color to make a point, not to separate us, but to acknowledge that the separation exists, to acknowledge that there's history and conditioning that has impacted our relative reality, that there's harm out there that we're not separate from, that we might want to feel more into in order to be alive, and that that's a piece of work that if we don't do that work, we're in that bypass place. You know, one of our teachers, Ajahn Tejaniya, says people only become awake and alert when there is some sort of discomfort or distress. They stop paying attention once they are comfortable again. So if I'm making you a little bit uncomfortable tonight, then I think I'm in the right place. One of the ways I talk about discomfort in the book is I call it a core competency of awakening. Consider discomfort a core competency of awakening. There's a term in the Pali teachings of Buddhism called Samvega, and it's interpreted this way, as an inner commotion or shock, which, is, which does not allow us to rest our habitual adjustment to the world. Instead, it drives us on out of our cozy palaces and into unfamiliar jungles to work out with diligence authentic solutions to our existential plight. So discomfort is a real useful um, experience, mainly because it gets our attention. And then what we do next becomes crucial. So... Too many of us want racial suffering to go away without first being touched by it. It's like we get a hit of it, we see something on the news, we have an experience, and, and then uh, we want it to go away. We want to fix it without first being touched by it, without first having intimacy with it. And that's, a, that's an important pause for our humanity. And what in, in the book, what I'm trying to do is not so much solve racial and social justice issues, but more to offer a framework for how we understand how we got there. So I'm really asking five questions in the book. The first question I'm trying to um, address is why are matters of race still matters of concern And what does this have to do with me? So that's one question. Another question is, how do I work with my thoughts and fears and beliefs in ways that nurture the dignity of all races? How do I do that without being pulled back into my conditioned way of responding? Third question, how do I comfort my own inner distress in a sea of racial ignorance and violence in the world? See, I think mostly we're tenderhearted, and uh, it makes sense that we would want to protect ourselves from what we perceive as harm. 
A fourth question, how do I advocate for racial justice and healing without causing harm and hate, both towards myself and towards others? And five, how can my thoughts and actions reflect the world I want to live in and leave to future generations? These are the questions I'm looking at in this book, and they're questions that point our attention inward to look at our relationship to race, racism, and racial distress. And the book is intended to point us towards harmony and racial healing. And I don't think that can happen unless we we bring this into the realm of practice, some kind of intentionality, some kind of way of bringing our attention, just like in our mindfulness practice, we bring our attention again and again back to the breath and the body. We also want to bring our attention back to our intention to understand our conditioning around race and racism. So this book uh, centers around three sections, and it's working with the metaphor of racism as a heart disease, and it's curable. So part one of the book is speaking to the diagnosis of the problem. And here what we're doing is understanding our habits of harm, our kind of habits, our knee-jerk habits that we've, we've learned. It's looking at the complexity of racial identity and conditioning. It's also looking at the dynamics of racial dominance and subordination. And it's offering six hindrances to racial harmony. These are behavioral patterns and constellations that we can begin to recognize in our day-to-day lives, both in our mind and in the external world. So we want to understand our conditioning. And then part two is looking at heart surgery, which is mindfulness, the intervention of mindfulness. And here we learn several practices that help us put a critical pause between our conditioning and our response. And here we gain perspective. We learn how to find our breath and our heartbeat and the ground beneath our feet so that we're not just in reactivity or going to sleep. And I have found in my own personal life and in working with many sanghas and individuals that um, we, when we can integrate, uh, when we can bring our practice of mindfulness to this inquiry, we're able to see a bit more clearly and respond a bit more wisely. We're able to put a pause around our impulses and question them, bring a bit more curiosity to the situation instead of criticism. And in part three, we're looking at recovery. We're looking at how do we cultivate a culture of care. And I'm looking, offering here a structure of um, what I refer to as racial affinity groups, ways we can uh, be an intentional community to really look at our racial conditioning close up and personal. So I want to say a little bit more about the framework that's offered here, especially in part one. 
which is in diagnosing the problem. See, there is a shape to racial oppression. There is a shape to it. And uh, we can bring our attention to that. There's, there's the structure I'm looking at here is that there are, um, we all have individual identities. Again, we're in the relative realm. We all are members in racial group identities. And um, so within our individual identities, we all come from families. We've all got biases, unconscious biases. Um, We've all had gains and losses and traumas and accomplishments. In the realm of the individual, our individual identities, we could say all lives matter, right? That's where individual identity kind of resonates. When we look from the, rim, from the lens of group identity, we start to see um, not just that we're part of individuals and families, but we're also part of racial group identities. And um, some of us know that and some of us don't. And we know, or at least I know, that all races, when you look from the lens of collective group identity, they're not created equal. We can see this. Some races are dominant and other races are subordinated. White race is dominant in our culture, looking at the collective. People of color tend to be subordinated within our racial context. We can see this. Um, So we can see at the group, racial group identity, why people talk about Black Lives Matter, for example, or the Me Too movements, or these collective group identities that emerge that are really addressing the imbalance around dominance and subordination. So we can bring our attention to how that plays out. So in dominant, um, the dominant group has a certain characteristic to it. We can see it in our social realm, our political realm, our health realm, our legal realm, because we're looking at group identities or systems or collectives here. Dominant group members tend to influence certain rules, and um, there's a sense of uh, more control over resources. We see um, a sense of presumed solidarity um, among dominant culture that everybody can see and know about and kind of recognize. And for many uh, people of color or subordinated group identities, there's the struggle for more resources and the struggle for more understanding of how we you know, can have more balance and the struggle for there to be an understanding of how harm is done. There's a racial correlation to this struggle because it is the dance of dominance and subordination. And we can recognize this dance of dominance and subordination, not just with race, but with any dominant identity, whether it's male or heterosexual or the Christian religion or, you know, we we know what these dominant uh, groups are in our society. So we, can, we just want to bring an honest eye to how this lives and the collective impact that it has. But many white people that I work with 
can recognize and identify with being individuals, but not so much as a racial group. There hasn't been an engagement in the historic and pervasive and uh, generational history of whiteness. That And the, one of the ways this shows up is that I've had uh, people say to me, oh, when I look at you, I don't see race. White people say that to me. You would never hear a person of color say to a white person, when I look at you, I don't see race. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't quite work that way. And so when, when you don't see race and you're looking at me, that's an individual view. I see you as, that's an ultimate view, ultimate reality view. I see you as a spirit. I see you, you know, I see you as I see me. I see you as I see, I don't see color. So that's a relative statement. I mean, that's an ultimate statement. A relative statement is that there is color, that that does have impact. When that's invisible, that has impact. When you don't see that, that has impact. So we miss each other. When people of color and white people come to the table to talk about race, often white people bring the individual lens, people of color bring a group identity lens, and we miss each other because we're bringing different historical points of reference to the table. And it's, and it's just very painful. So there are six hindrances that I refer to in the book that speak to, um, uh, that interfere with our sense of harmony, social harmony. And one of them is what I've been talking about, which is the good white individual that is not in touch with a sense of collective group racial identity. That that history, that connection, that membership is not a part of the discussion, is not in the mix, in the conversation. A good individual. I've worked with the Insight community in Charlottesville um, prior to the rally that was there and after, and they've done quite a bit of the mindful of race training. And I remember the mayor speaking to the community after the rally, saying that something like, these alt-right folks need to get out of our fair city, something like that. And my thinking was, where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? Because when they're kind of left out of the, when there's that dismemberment, somebody's picking up that slack somewhere. And it's usually people of color. <laughs> you know, so when, when that sense of collective, like these are our people too, you know, you know, these, you know. So when, where are they going to go is my question. And when they're, when they're not dealt with by white people, people of color end up having to deal with or pick up that slack. So again, a general way of looking at this is at the individual level, all lives matter. At the racial group identity level, black lives matter. You see, there's a, there's a, there's a different lens to look at from race because of the dynamic of dominance and subordination. Another hindrance that I talk about, I refer to as the stars and the constellations. With the stars and the constellations, it's similar to the individual versus group um, limbs. 
So uh, one story is um, when Michael Brown, the 18-year-old African-American man, was killed in um, um, Ferguson by the 28-year-old white police officer. Uh, There was a group of us in Charlotte where I lived that got together to have a conversation about how we felt about this and what we could do about it in our community. And they showed a clip of that incident and then asked us how we felt and what we saw. And there were uh, mostly white people that came together to really try to work this issue. And a white guy, maybe around in his mid-40s, was sitting in the circle and he shared... I can't believe that man killed that boy. That should have never happened. I'm committing my life to making, you know, to to looking into this. He was shivering. He was crying. He was shaking. He was visibly really moved by this. And when I talked about it, I said, I can't believe that once again, a white police officer has killed an African-American unarmed, dot, dot, dot. I, too, was shaking. I was committed to figuring out how we figure this out. And, you know, so we were both upset, but we saw different things. The white guy saw an individual incident. When he talked about it, it didn't have color in the description. He saw the stars. When I talked about it, I saw a constellation, a tattoo, the Big Dipper, a repetitive motion, injury. It wasn't just this killing. It was a whole bunch of them that were happening, and I was speaking to that pain. The white person was talking about an individual view. I was talking about a collective, historic generational view. So we come to these conversations with different levels of energy and intensity and a different view, oftentimes, of how we see it. We were both hurting. And so what happens for many people of color is when we're in this conversation, it's hard to, to feel like we're making any traction because there's a cumulative impact for people of color that care, that's carried into the discussion. Have you ever been in a discussion of race and felt a little bruised and frightened or, you know, are you both, are you walked out saying, wow, where did all that come from? You know, I just said that, that, that. Well, what happens is that there's a cumulative, there's cumulative impact for a lot of people of color. There's an urgency around um, the need for connection and care and, um, um, and, um, and um, there's a lot happening in those moments. So it takes a lot of kindness, a lot of uh, love, a lot of compassion. It takes our practice, our mindfulness practice, to really be able to stay engaged. When those blow-ups happen, if white people take the blow-up as personal, which would be an individual response, then the group um, historic piece can't really um, be penetrated in those moments. So there's a missed opportunity. But it's not easy to do this. It takes a practice of intention. But when we can start to see the constellation instead of just a single incident that occurred today, If we can start connecting the dots, we can see this same shape 
of dominance, subordination, of injury that's happening uh, in, in, in Tibet, in Syria, in Pakistan, in Canada. I mean, we can look around and see this shape if we're open to looking at it, if we open our lens to that. And then we can also begin to see the systems of racism that take shape around it that create great profit, like the prison industrial complex, the militarization of the police forces, you know, the immigrant. um, uh, We can start to see how this all is a system of oppression that actually feeds on greed, aversion, delusion, Um, that has a racial uh, uh, strata to it. These are dark bodies we're talking about mostly that are effective. I was working with a woman who, uh, you know, was a prosecutor, and, um, you know, she said to me, I I can't believe how many white women, she said, I can't believe how many um, people I have put in the prison system. And I'm thinking... Oh, my God, she's talking to a black great-grandmother who has people in the prison system that, you know, some of them belong there, but not all of them, you know. And she said that she had, uh, that one strategy was to talk to them about understanding their crimes. And that's one question. Another question is really understanding, there could be other questions asked around the system that's concocted that replicates a certain um, in balance, and who ends up in the systems. This really requires a certain pause to understand how this works. And then there's the hindrance of um, uh, blindness, sameness, and silence that is really characteristic of white privilege. You can't understand white privilege if you're looking from the individual lens. You have to look at it from the collective lens. It's the only way it makes sense. And it's a real dynamic. We can start to bring awareness to it. It's not about anybody being wrong. It's about waking up to some of these things and then seeing what what you can do with privilege. But I heard a thing. I saw a thing on Facebook that said, incoming Congress. 80% 80% white male, 92% Christian, 100% unaware that this is a problem. <laughs> That's how blindness, sameness, and silence works. You just can't see and you don't know. So what happens at the institutional level when we see that the predominant leadership is white in many institutions? It's not that that's so much an issue, but what comes with that oftentimes is an unconsciousness of racial group identity, an unconsciousness of whiteness, because what gets rolled up into institutional leadership is um, um, the good individual, the good white individual. So the the consciousness is around individual achievement, you know, it's not around a sense of understanding of racial group identity feeling into a sense of membership. So then the replication of consciousness repeats itself. It proliferates. The cultures inside organizations, it's not a matter of whether they're races or not, or races institutions, of course. 
how can it not be? Because the, uh, the, the group identity level around um, uh, whiteness hasn't been vetted. It hasn't been examined. White people haven't sat together and really examined what is this thing called whiteness. So the individual mindset just gets elevated and replicated until it's interrupted. And more and more it's being interrupted because many uh, people are waking up to harm and impact. So in the book, I'm offering two structures that help us look at how our minds have been conditioned around this and how we kind of break out of it. One is the mindfulness meditation practice. And in mindfulness meditation, I'm really looking at the power of perception, our knee-jerk reaction to perception, how we perceive. There is a teaching in the Vipalasa Sutta uh, that talks about the cycle of misperception. And it talks about we perceive, then we immediately have thoughts and motions about what we perceive. When that's reinforced, it forms a view. The view stays in place until it's examined again. And then we see, and that just gets, you know, gets proliferated. So part of our challenge and what mindfulness practice helps us do is interrupt that. So I tell the story sometime of being in Charlottesville is another story. I spend a lot of time there. And a woman was taken to me to the airport. It was after a training on mindful of race. And we stopped at this intersection. And I looked up at the name of the street, and it said Barack Avenue. And I said, oh, my goodness, where am I? I'm in this progressive city. The name of the street, Barack Avenue. Oh, this is great. I'm sitting there. I got all puffed up and warm and started speaking Swahili in my mind and my head wrapped was regal. And, and I finally opened my mouth and said to the white woman that was driving me to the airport, I said, wow, what a progressive city this is to have a street named after, you know, Barack Obama. To which she said, <clears throat> in these parts, we call that street Barracks Avenue. But I was so convinced it was Barack. And so often we walk around so convinced of what we see, what we perceive. Then we have thoughts and emotions about it. It forms a view. I called my partner saying, can we move here? They've got a street cover. <laughs> you know, all of this is made up in the mind, right? But I was so convinced, and of course, when I, I mean, I thought about what would happen if I hadn't opened my mouth. I would have carried that view, and nobody would have known, and I would have kept making that mistake over and over again. <laughs> so we, we think we know when we only don't know. We just really don't know. I have this bracelet that I wear. It says, mindful of race, not there yet. You know, I usually wear three of them because I'm always giving them away instead of having a long conversation with somebody when I get triggered. But uh, I got on a plane one day and a woman saw the bracelet. She says, oh, what does that say? And I said, mindful of race. And before I could say more, she says, oh, yes, I ran a 10K for cancer once. And, you know... Wow, you're looking really good, you know. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're live streaming all the time. 
different pieces of information. We're streaming together based on what we think we know and running with that. And this is a crucial dynamic that we need to slow down and unpack as it comes to race. Because this is what can make the difference between whether somebody pulls a trigger or not. You know? It's very important. So mindfulness practice supports us in doing that very intentionally. One last story. My mother told me this story ages ago. She she says, you know, a lot of growing up, we had a lot of uh, stories to teach us about race. She says, yeah, the two black guys were driving down a, a one lane windy hill and they passed a police car with two white guys driving up the hill. And so when they passed the, the police car coming down the hill, they shouted out, pigs, pigs. And the police officers were pissed off, but they couldn't turn around because it was a one lane road and it was. So they went up a little bit only to have to slam on their brakes because a herd of pigs were crossing the lane, right? So we associate different words with, and we're off and running, right? But this is a real important thing to slow down. You know, the RAIN practice of recognize, allow, investigate and nurture is also very useful when we're investigating our racial uh, stimulation. We can ask what's happening, what's obvious in the morning, in the moment. Where and how do I hurt? We can ask these questions. We can allow it. Can I be with it? Can I be what's happening? Can I be with what's happening? We can investigate we can ask some questions here about our conditioning. And then we can nurture. How do I care for this distress? What tenderness is needed in this moment? How can I care for for the upset? And when we can care for the upset instead of expecting that to come from the outside, you know, if our liberation is dependent on somebody outside of us getting it, we're really, really challenged. And then the second, so, so our mindfulness meditation practice is supporting us at the individual level. And then the racial affinity groups are supporting us at the racial group identity level. And this is really important because uh, we need a safe place where we can talk about race, where we can um, not be in the tension and fear of hurting somebody or getting it wrong or where there's that urgency. Sometimes there's an urgency among white people for people of color to teach them about race. And then people of color want to separate from white people because they get tired of explaining the, the rub. and the. So there's just this heartburn and, again, hurt that happens again and again. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate for us forming racial affinity groups so that we can do our work together and minimize the harm. It's not the only form we need, but it is an important piece that's missing uh, in the engagement around unpacking this. White people need a racial affinity group so that they can understand more intimately whiteness. And people of color need a racial affinity group 
so that they can understand more intimately how we have internalized oppression to the point of separating ourselves from the other bodies of color. So what happens with us is sometimes there becomes a racial hierarchy, a racial pyramid of subordinated suffering within the body of color that we've been conditioned to separate ourselves from. So softening and waking up to how we impact each other is an important piece of work for us. And for white people, it's really understanding why is it so difficult for us to come together as white people and stay together for a while and talk about race, our racial conditioning, this thing called whiteness that everybody else seems to know something about except us. I think it's an important question that breaks the habitual uh, perception of the silo individual and puts you into the context of groupness, of a racial group. And why do we do this? Uh, We do this uh, so that we can be in the business of seeding a culture of care so that we're all doing our part to understand how we hurt each other and how we can can heal. Eckhart Tolle tells us, uh, which is is really touching into both ultimate and relative reality, he says, ultimately, you're not a person, but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. So what do we bring, what consciousness do we bring to that focal point that can be uh, our seeds, um, uh, our offerings? And there's three principles to, to social harmony that I emphasize in the book, which are interdependence, the fact that we belong to each other, that we're in this karmic web of humanity, uh, and that what we do really does matter, even if we think it's hidden or a secret. <laughs> That compassion, uh, the practice of compassion, is a, is a weapon of mass healing, that it has such potency, such, such power, um, that when, we are, when our heart is intimately engaged, it really does make a difference in how we have this conversation. Sometimes I invite people to say, imagine having a conversation about race with another person outside of your race And you're heated up, but you're still holding hands. That there's some point of contact, some point of humanness still in the equation at all times. I also invite people to keep at least 50% of their attention on their body and breath when they're trying to talk about race. See where you exit in the conversation, where you go numb, where it just feels terrifying, and then drop all of that right in the heart of your mindfulness practice. So these are things that we can do. And the third principle is harmlessness. What if we were to move through the world where doing no harm was was not even a negotiable? It's just not a negotiable. That's going to be a practice. Some of us say that we're doing this, but it has some limits. You know, social movements that we see throughout the world are attempts for us to see a sense of social harmony or or social equanimity. There's movements 
uh, are usually about dominance and subordination. It's the resistance to subordination, to dominance. And it's an attempt to bring a sense of social harmony into balance. Patrice Coyer, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, says that you can't policy racism away. We no longer have Jim, Lo- Jim Crow laws, but we still have Jim Crow hate. The heart has to be involved in order for this shift to happen. Presence, up close, personal intention. So my prayer is that um, my offering this evening has been a a stimulus um, for well-being and um, that you have felt my heart intention um, and that at the root of everything I'm intending here is deep in love and in love and a, a love that's for our humanity for us to uh, really um, come together with a, with a sense of dignity and respect for our history as well as our healing as well as our potential. So let's sit together for a couple of minutes. May we see the world with peaceful eyes. May our energy be aimed at awakening. May we understand and transform racial habits of harm. 
May we remember that we belong to each other. May we heal the seeds of separation inherited from our ancestors and gratitude for this life. May all beings without exception benefit from our practice. And may we meet the racial cries of the world with as much wisdom and grace as we can muster. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.